Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com, the show that's dedicated to saving you money on buying and owning a vehicle. Now, here's your host, Rick Popley. Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks, where each week we help you make smarter choices about buying and owning a vehicle and save money. Hello, everyone. I'm Rick Popley, your host and proprietor. Thanks for joining me today. On today's show, we will discuss maintenance, myths, and musts. Should you change your oil every 3,000 miles? Should you use synthetic oil? Have you ever been exposed to the fluid flush frenzy? That's when you go for an oil change, but the repair shop recommends you also get fresh transmission fluid, brake fluid, power steering fluid, and engine coolant. Do you need all of that, or are they just trying to upsell you? We will talk about those and other maintenance, myths, and musts today with Larry Carley, who is certified as an automotive technician by Automotive Service Excellence. Larry is the author of numerous articles and books on automotive diagnosis and repair. He is a noted authority on maintenance topics. will share his knowledge about what you need to do and what you don't to keep your car in shape. But before we go under the hood and start pulling dipsticks, Here's this week's auto news you might be able to use. The check is in the mail. Ford has started mailing checks to owners of the 2013 C-Max Hybrid as a goodwill gesture after the company reduced the fuel economy estimate on the C-Max. That happened after many C-Max owners complained they weren't getting the 47 miles per gallon that Ford listed as the combined city highway mileage. Ford lowered the EPA rating to 43 miles per gallon in August. Anyone who bought a 2013 C-Max Hybrid can expect a $550 check from Ford. If you leased a C-Max, you should get $325. Owners also can take their C-Max to a dealer for software upgrades that Ford says should improve real-world fuel economy. Ford announced it would roll back the EPA rating on August 15th. Sales of the C-Max fell 28% in September. Another electric vehicle is coming soon. Kia says it will offer a sole EV in 2014, though it has provided no details. The sole is a compact hatchback with funky styling and room in the back for batteries to power an electric motor. Last week, we pulled the mask off the loan arranger when we talked about how car dealers mark up the interest rates on loans they arrange for new and used vehicles. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is investigating whether that practice leads to discrimination against minorities, women, and the elderly. It is pressing banks to limit how much dealers can increase interest rates or institute a flat fee instead. Some major banks have sent letters to dealers saying they see patterns that indicate dealers may discriminate against these groups by charging them higher interest rates. The banks say they will continue to monitor these markups and could switch to a flat fee in the future. Last week, Chris Kukla of the Center for Responsible Lending said on the show that a flat fee that is the same for everyone would be one way to address allegations of discrimination. 
Remember when buying a Toyota Corolla meant you were buying a car made in Japan? The Corolla has been made in the U.S. and Canada for several years. And starting next year, Corollas made at a Toyota plant near Tupelo, Mississippi, will be exported to 18 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Made in the USA and soon to be sold in a lot of other countries. And that is this week's auto news you might be able to use. My guest is Larry Carley, a prolific writer and author on a wide range of topics concerning automotive maintenance, diagnosis, and repair. Larry, who lives in the Chicago area, is a certified automotive technician in seven areas of expertise, and he is a frequent contributor to Babcock's Media's Automotive Tech Publications. He runs his own website, aa1car.com, that has extensive information on maintaining and repairing vehicles. On his website, you can find information on everything from diagnosing problems with emission controls and ignition systems to tips for buying a used car and even a guide to what's that odor inside your car. Welcome to the show, Larry. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Glad you're here with me today. Larry, the uh, maintenance that needs to be performed most often on today's vehicles is to change the engine oil and filter. However, there seems to be no hard and fast rules on how often you should do this. Some vehicle manufacturers say you can go 10,000 miles between oil changes. BMW says you can even go 15,000 miles. But many mechanics still recommend you get an oil change every 3,000 miles. Why is there such a disparity in these recommendations? What do you think is the right number of miles or time period? Well, first of all, there, there's really no simple answer to that question because the, the oil change interval is going to depend on a, a number of things. It's going to depend on the year, make, and uh, model of your vehicle. It's going to depend on the age of your vehicle, the mileage on the engine, and what kind of driving you do. Um, for the average motorist who's driving a, you know, a late model car with, say, less than 75,000 miles on it, I would say just stick with whatever the factory recommended service intervals are. Um, today, most of those are somewhere between 5,000 to 7,500 miles. And on the vehicles, say like a lot of the GM products and some of the European cars where you have an oil uh, service reminder light, just go with the light. When the light comes on, that tells you it's time to change oil. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, uh, General Motors uh, says that on most vehicles, every 7,500 miles, you should rotate the ch- uh, tires and change the oil and filter if needed. It says, mm-hmm. because I guess they go by the oil life monitor. Right, yeah. So say it's 7,500 miles and the oil light monitor has not come on, um, you can probably keep driving with that oil that's, that's in the engine. Um, what what the, the oil monitor does, it doesn't actually measure oil quantity. It's an algorithm that takes a look at, you know, how many miles you've been driving, ambient temperatures, uh, vehicle speeds, vehicle loads, all these things, and it crunches all the numbers and it estimates you know, how much oil life is left in, the, in that oil in the crankcase. Um, so when that light comes on, the computer is basically saying, okay, we think this oil has reached or it's getting very close to the end of its service life. You better have it changed now. Uh, any thoughts on how accurate these oil life monitors are? Well, most of the other um, vehicle manufacturers put a lot of research into that, so I would put a fair amount of faith in it, but there's a couple of caveats. One is that um, the life of that oil is based on a very high-quality oil. And a lot of these high-end luxury sports cars, 
uh, that come from the factory are filled with either a synthetic oil or a synthetic blend oil. They're not using a, a, you know, the cheapest conventional Walmart type oil you can you know buy. So if, if you're going by the uh, oil reminder light, you want to make sure you're using a quality branded product of some type and that it meets whatever the vehicle uh, specifications call for. And if it calls for a synthetic blend or a full synthetic, then that's what you better be using. Okay, uh, I know that BMW, uh, where they say you can go 15,000 miles, they do use synthetic oil. Right. I was surprised to find out that the uh, four-cylinder engine in the current Camry requires synthetic oil, and the grade is 0W20. It's a yeah. new one on me. A lot of the European cars um, here in the last few years have gone to the 0W20. That's a very thin oil. It's you know as thin as water, if not thinner. And the reason for doing that is that it flows very well at low temperature, and it reduces friction, so that helps the, the fuel economy of the vehicle. Now, in a vehicle like a, uh, like a Toyota Prius, from about, I think it's around 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, uh, where they started specifying the 0W20 oil, if you put a heavier oil in there, say like a, you know, a 530 or something like that, mm-hmm. it can actually turn on your check engine light. Oh, wow. The increased drag there, the engine sensors will pick up, pick that up, and they'll think that something is wrong with the engine. I mean, there's nothing really wrong. It's not going to hurt anything, but you will get a check engine light. I see. Uh, is, for a car that can take regular oil, uh-huh. uh, is synthetic oil worth the extra money? Uh, there again, it depends. If, if it's a car that, that you care a lot about and you're going to try and keep for a, you know, a long number of years um, and you want to... You know, I guess do, do the best maintenance you can. Then, yeah, spend the extra bucks, get the synthetic oil. Um, you know, synthetic's going to cost you maybe two to three times as much as a regular conventional oil. And there again, with a synthetic, if you want to try and stretch out the oil change intervals a little bit to, to try and equalize that cost, um, you know, you can do that as well. I know some of the, the synthetic oil companies, Amsoil in particular, they're making claims of, oh, you can go 25,000 miles with our synthetic oil. Well, I, I <laughs> would not believe that. Um, because, uh, you know, you're going to get crankcase blow-by and moisture accumulation in there. And even though the oil itself may be holding up, uh, you don't know what's happened with the filter and, and the other contaminants in the crankcase. So I, I would stick with, you know, not, not going beyond whatever the factory recommended intervals are. Okay. If you, um, uh, let's say you, you've had a car for a few years or you buy a, a three- or four-year-old uh, used car, does it make uh-huh. any sense to switch from regular oil to synthetic at that point? Um, it could. Um, several of the oil companies market what they call high-mileage oils, mm-hmm. and these are for cars that have over 75,000 miles on the odometer. And what they do is some of those oils do contain a higher percentage of a synthetic blend in the oil, and they also contain uh, seal conditioners, because uh, one of the things that synthetics does is it penetrates um, uh, seals and gaskets more so than, than regular conventional oils, and so there's a slight swelling effect. So if you've got an older car and the gaskets are losing some of their elasticity, um, using one of these high-mileage oils or a synthetic oil um, sometimes will actually stop an oil leak on these cars or at least make it you know, less apt to leak. Ah, That's a problem. I see. Uh, uh, some uh, manufacturers, Chrysler is one, I believe Honda is another, in which they do not even list in their maintenance schedule a timetable for getting your oil changed. Right. They say just watch your oil life monitor. And um, it was interesting that driving a test vehicle, this is a uh, Dodge Ram 1500 pickup with a V6 engine recently, and 
um, the oil change required light came on at 3,370 miles. Okay. And, and I have no idea who drove it before. Well, I do have an idea. Other journalists like me. And Hard use. <laughs> apparently, and apparently all around day. town, but, um, I had lunch when, uh, at a Chrysler event recently when, uh, there was a, uh, gentleman there who deals with these service intervals and he just off the top of his head said, you know, with this loyal life monitor, we expect you to go anywhere depending, you know, on how you drive from 4,000 to 10,000 miles before mm-hmm. that light will come on. I was rather surprised it came on so soon. Well, that could be a couple of things. Uh, in some cases, that oil reminder light is also connected to an oil level sensor. Ah. So if for whatever reason, if whoever the last person wanted to change oil, they didn't get enough oil in there, if the engine's been using oil, if you've got a leak, um, anyway, if it drops below a certain you know minimum level, it will also turn that light on in some cases. Now, th- certain things will obviously shorten the life of the oil. Uh, very short trip driving, mm-hmm. um, especially during cold weather, uh, that will shorten the oil life drastically because you get a lot of condensation in the crankcase and condensation and oil don't like each other, and eventually that'll form acids and sludge and really, you know, gum up the engine. So that's one thing that will shorten oil life. Right. Um, extreme temperatures, you know, if you're in an Arizona area and it's, you know, 95, 100 degrees, um, and you're towing a trailer, that that is really hard, too, on the oil, and that can shorten oil life as well. So a lot of factors play into that. Okay, and... and um... Uh, service intervals in general are getting longer, you know, yes. just, uh, just all fluids, but there's still a lot of, a um, lot of mechanics or shops where you go that they say, you know, you should, you should change your oil every 3,000 miles. Yeah. What, what about that? Well, if we get back to that, that's sort of been the industry standard for, for many years. It was change your oil every 3,000 miles or three months. And it was based on, you know, that the average person would drive somewhere around 10 to 12,000 miles a year. Mm-hmm. And that was based on, on older technology engines. Um, starting in probably, I would say, the mid to late 1990s, uh, engine specifications tightened up a lot. Um, the factory started doing better uh, finishes on the cylinder walls. They were using higher quality coatings on the piston rings. Um, tolerances in general tightened up all over the engine. Uh, many of them switched from flat tappet cams to roller cams. A lot, a lot of internal changes in the, the engine design itself. So, and these were all things that were good for uh, oil life. And so the old 3,000-mile thing is still true if you've got an old car or a car right. with you know, a lot of miles on it. Um, but it, it's, you just don't really need that anymore. For okay. Probably about the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it's, it's probably unnecessary. Unless, there again, you've got a car that's got a lot of miles on it. You're doing a lot of idling time. Um, you're not driving the car very much, and it's, you know, cold weather. You're just doing, like, little short trips stop-and-go type driving, anything that would increase condensation in the crankcase is going to shorten the, the life of that oil. Okay. We have to pause here for a break, uh, Larry, but uh, when we come back, we'll finish up our discussion of engine oil and then move on to other vital, vital fluids when we continue talking about maintenance, facts, and fiction. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Here's Rick Hopley. Welcome back, everyone. 
My guest today is Larry Carley, a noted writer and author on automotive maintenance and repair topics and an automotive technician certified by the Automotive Service Excellence Organization. Larry also runs the AA1Car.com website, which has extensive information on automotive maintenance, diagnosis, and repair. If you have a question for Larry, the phone lines are open. You can join the conversation by calling 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. Before the break, Larry, we were talking about oil and uh, how often you should change it. And you mentioned a couple times about older engines uh, needing more frequent oil changes. Why is that? Well, there again, uh, it has to do with looser tolerances, more blow-by in those engines, and obviously, you know, the miles add up, the wear increases, and you're going to get more blow-by. And, uh, Excuse me, what is blow-by? It sounds dangerous. Oh, well, it is. Uh, basically, your engine is losing compression. Instead of the, the air and fuel mixture remaining in the, you know, the cylinder and doing its work, um, some of that is blown by the piston rings and actually going down into the crankcase. That includes uh, soot, unburned fuel, and uh, water vapor. And over time, that accumulates in the crank in the crankcase, and uh, some of those vapors are siphoned back into the engine by the uh, PVC system to help keep the oil clean. But you know, eventually, the oil just gets so saturated with that stuff, and it starts to break down that you have to change it. I see. Um, and and um, um, how much how much more often would you would you want to change? Well, the, there again, uh, the, there's no reason to probably go any more than 3,000 miles any more frequently than that. That should do it for even, you know, like the worst-case scenario type engine. Um, but to, uh, you know, to, to extend it out from there, it's going to, there again, it's going to depend on, the you know, the condition of the engine and, you know, how it's well it's running. Okay. Um, just one other thing on the, the longer service intervals and, and fluid changes. In addition to the things you mentioned about the, uh, the changes in the engine uh, materials and technology, um, isn't there uh, pressure from the EPA on vehicle manufacturers and the service industry to reduce the amount of waste and uh, recycled oil? Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's one of the reasons why you're seeing longer service intervals. Oils themselves have gotten a lot better in recent years. Um, many of today's oils, particularly like the 5W20, the fairly light stuff, mm-hmm. um, a high percentage of that oil is actually synthetic oil. Oh, when the, when the refiners make oil, they make it into what, what are called various groups. Uh, group one oil would be like your typical, least expensive, conventional mineral oil. And um, the, the, the defining qualities of that, it has you know certain viscosity ratings, it has a certain amount of contaminants that are allowed, and that sort of thing. The next step up would be a group two oil, which is uh, you know a much better grade of oil, and that's where most of today's oils are today. They're no longer group one. Most of those are contained either all or at least a, a high percentage of Group 2 base stocks. Uh, next step up from that is like a Group 3, and those are your synthetic oils, and then Group 4 like your super premium synthetics. So when a when an oil company is formulating an oil, they'll, you know, like maybe use 50 60% of a Group 2 and another 20 30% of a Group 3, and, you know, and plus to put in, you know, like 25 to or so additives in there. So that's it's quite a, a mixture that goes into a can of oil. It's not just, you know, straight... Uh, hydrocarbons in there. Hmm. A lot of things go into the can. So, and that that's been changing. Another change that's happened in recent years is the uh, the EPA has asked the oil companies to reduce the amount of anti wear additive that's in the oil. Um, 
there's a compound called ZDDP, and I don't know if I can pronounce it or not. It's a zinc diethyl something another phosphorus. Anyway, it's a mixture of zinc and phosphorus, and it's in there as an anti-wear additive primarily to protect the camshaft. Well, there again, on, on most of the late model cars, they're either overhead cam engines or they're um, what they're called roller cam engines, which operate at much lower friction. Mm-hmm. So they don't need the, the amount of anti-wear additive that, that the older engines used to require. Uh-huh. And the reason they're, they're taking the, the zinc and the phosphorus out is over time it can contaminate the catalytic converter and shorten the life of the converter. And that's a very expensive component to replace. So the EPA wants your converter to last as long as possible. So starting, oh, it's been several years ago now, they changed the specification on motor oils. And they, they cut the amount of ZDDP by quite a bit. Now, that's fine. doesn't bother the modern engines. But if you've got an older car, say you've got a, you know, a classic Mustang or a Corvette or a, a street rod or you know, some kind of a car like that with, a, with an old-style flat-tappet cam in it, um, and you're running it on today's motor oils, you're probably going to wreck your camshaft. Wow. So for those kind of applications, um, you need either an aftermarket additive of some type you know, that, that can add supplemental ZDDP, or you need an, an oil specially formulator for those older engines. Wow, that's something to think about if you have an older car or want to right. buy one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the bottom line on changing oil, then, is what here? I would say, you know, at least follow the vehicle manufacturer's recommendations. Personally, I would not go beyond 7,500 miles. I think that's really pushing it. Uh, my own vehicles, I change oil. Uh, depends on kind of driving. If it's mostly highway driving, I'll go 5,000 miles. If it's mostly city stop and go driving, I'll change it to three to 4,000 miles. How do you uh, dispose of it? I basically take it back to the auto parts store. Most stores now will oh. take uh, oil for recycling. Okay. All right. I, I mentioned uh, in the introduction the uh, fluid flush frenzy. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I actually <laughs> uh, picked that up from a mechanic who called the called it the uh, fluid flush fantasy. But you know, you go to a quick lube place and they want to flush all your vital fluids. Right. Your car's got twenty five or thirty thousand miles on it. Yeah. Um, here, here's something that that uh, you know I I would be very cautious about that. Looking at transmission fluid, mm-hmm. here's here's some current uh, uh, models. Ford says on most of its engines, you don't have or, or transmissions, you don't have to change the fluid until every hundred and fifty thousand miles. That's right. Yeah. The Hyundai Santa Fe Sport has four cylinder engines. They say no check, no service. Right. Unless you do severe driving, then they say every 60,000 miles, right. uh, change it. But here, here's something that's interesting. Chrysler's four-cylinder engines, uh, they say change the transmission fluid every 12 years or 120,000 miles. But if you buy a Fiat or a Chrysler with the Fiat 1.4-liter engine, they say change it every 50,000 miles. I mean, wow. <laughs> Yeah. This well, is quite a spread depends, here. Well, part of that depends on, there again, the type of fluid that they're using in the transmission mm-hmm. itself and the temperature that that fluid operates at. Uh, most of today's fluids are, are there again, they're, they're based on synthetic base stocks. They're very high-quality lubricants. Um, and as long as you don't, you know, overheat them too much, they'll hold up, I mean, basically almost, you know, the life of the car. They'll, they'll go see. a long, long time. When you say overheat, that's done by, what, towing? Towing is probably the worst thing, mm-hmm. yeah. Anything that really strains it, or if, if something would happen um, to the transmission oil cooler on some cars, um, it's a little separate uh, heat exchanger. 
On most cars, it's basically just a little loop of pipe that goes through the, the end or the side or the bottom of the radiator. And basically, it's just to keep the, the fluid from getting too hot. If the fluid does get hot, it starts to burn and oxidize. It'll smell like burnt toast when you check the dipstick. Um, if that's happening, uh, you need a fluid change, and you need to find out you know, why that fluid is running hot. Okay, so that's one thing. That's how do you know when it's time right. to change is uh, if it smells like burnt toast. Right, and if it's very dark, you know, discolored, very, you know, dark brown, anything like that, uh, that, that is a bad sign. Okay. Uh, and, and the best way to, to change a transmission fluid is to, to do what they call a uh, fluid exchange machine. Mm-hmm. They hook it up to the car, and basically, as it pulls old fluid out, it puts new fluid in. If you just try to drop the pan and, and drain it that way, um, half to two-thirds of the fluid remains in the torque converter and never comes out. So you think you've done a fluid change, and you still got a lot of old fluid in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. What, what about uh, uh, transmission uh, fluid flushing? I think it's Honda is one of the companies that I recall saying don't flush it. Yeah, that should not be necessary unless you've got a case where, you know, the fluid has, has never been changed. You've got a car that's maybe got a hundred and you know, 50,000 miles on it, and that, that fluid looks like syrup that's coming out of there. Um, but then there's a risk. If if you flush it or even if you change the fluid at that point, sometimes it loosens up varnish that's in there, and that can gum up the valve body, and all of a sudden you start having shifting problems. So some technicians will say, if you've never changed it, leave it alone, don't mess with it. Um, I was will... I was going to ask that question because yeah. I have seen... I have uh, seen uh, things online from technicians who said, if you're at 110,000 miles and you've never changed it, don't touch it. Right, right. So there is something to that. Now, if you are going to change it, you know, and you want to do trying to keep your car forever, then I would say, you know, like 50,000, 60,000 miles, um, you know, have it changed at that point. Um, otherwise, chances are you're going to sell the car or, or, you know, get rid of it before that transmission fluid goes. Okay, and 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 if you're having shifting problems with an automatic transmission, uh, good time to get rid of a car. <laughs> <Right? laughs> Why is that? Yeah. Why is um, that? Well, if you're having shift problems with it, um, that's usually a sign that your automatic transmission is starting to go. Uh huh. Um, if the, you've got like an overdrive warning light, like on Ford products, and that's coming on or flashing, um, that's bad news. It's your your days are numbered. Okay, and that's expensive. Yeah, very expensive. Uh, most transmission shops will not, you know, try to go in there and piecemeal fix things. Basically, they just pull the old unit out and they stick in a newer, remanufactured uh, transmission. Three. You're looking at, you know, two thousand to twenty-five hundred or more for for a typical transmission job. Okay, and and uh, fresh transmission fluid will not fix shifting problems. No, no, or no miracle <laughs> additives in a can. You know, a lot of the parts stores sell this stuff, but it's you know, it's snake oil. Okay. Um, how about if we uh, take another break here, and then uh, when we come back, we can move on to uh, other vital fluids, such as coolant and, and, and other things under the hood. Okay. All right. We will continue our discussion with Larry Carley on maintenance, myths, and musts, what you need to do to properly maintain your car, and what you don't. Now, more cars, trucks, and bucks on TalkZone.com with your host, Rick Popley. Welcome back to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. We're talking today about vehicle maintenance, 
what you need to do and how often, and what you might not need to do or could safely put off to another day. My guest is Larry Carley, a certified automotive technician and a prolific author of articles, books, and manuals on automotive maintenance, diagnosis, and repair. Larry's website, aa1car.com, has a wealth of knowledge on vehicles, common problems, and tips on diagnosis and repair. If you have a question or comment about maintenance or repair, the phone lines are open. Call us at 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. Larry, uh, engine coolant is another one of these um, vital fluids that if you look at the service intervals recommended by the manufacturers are kind of all over the board. Hyundai Santa Fe Sport. This is the new four-cylinder model. 60,000 miles. You should change it, and then every 30,000 miles thereafter. Ford, most engines, every 100,000 miles. Some Subaru engines, 13 years or 132,000 miles. Right. Long time. Yeah. Well, there again, like like motor oil, uh, today's coolants um, are, are a better quality product. The, the, the base additive, ethylene glycol, is the same in today's coolants as that they've always used in coolants. The difference is in the additive package. Uh, most of the coolants today use something called OAT, it's organic acid technology additives. And these are a, they're a slower acting but longer lasting type of uh, anti-corrosion or corrosion inhibiting uh, chemicals. And so the typical life of, of the coolants today, they'll say, you know, five years or 100,000 miles. In some cases, they may claim 150,000 miles. But as long as those corrosion inhibitors are intact and working in the system, um, you don't have to worry about changing the coolant. Um, as long as you, you know, check the level, make sure it's not low or something like that, you don't have a leak, um, you really don't have to do much with it. Now, if you've got a car, an older car, that had the old uh, typical what they call green formula, North American formula coolant in it, um, the service life on that stuff was about two to three years or about, you know, 36,000 miles. And once that stuff depletes, you start getting corrosion in there, and that can lead to, you know, very expensive problems with uh, radiators and heat exchangers and um, water pumps and things like that. So you, you don't want that to happen. What um, uh, th- that thing, you do, that material or, or substance you describe, is it like a timed release? That, that no, it's keeps... just it's a different chemistry. They call it organic acid technology. Mm-hmm. I'm not a chemist, so I don't know exactly what the you know the properties are. But instead of you know like reacting like right away to any corrosion that starts to develop in the system, it's much slower acting. Um, but it will last a long, long time compared to the old style coolants. Now you can still buy the old stuff. That's probably the cheapest product on the shelf um, to put in a car for the older cars. But, but the older green stock type coolants should not be used in, in anything from about the mid-90s forward. Mm. Uh, most of those cars require a specific type of coolant. And there are also some universal coolants that can be used in, in any late model car, regardless of your maker model or the color of the coolant itself. Uh, how, how do you know when you're, uh, it's time to change your coolant? Well, the, the best way to tell, uh, you can buy an auto parts store these little chemical test strips. And what you do is you remove the radiator cap or the reservoir cap, and you dip one of these little strips in there, and it changes color. And it gives you basically a, a good borderline or bad indication. Kind of like and, a pregnancy test. Yeah, and it's basically it's reacting to the chemistry of the coolant itself. And if, if the corrosion inhibitors are depleted, it'll show bad, and then you know we're borderline. 
and you'll know that it's time to change your coolant. I've got a, uh, a 2004 Nissan Maxima. I've never changed the coolant in it. Every time I test it, it tests fine. So as long as it tests fine, I'm not going to change it. Why bother? Okay. Can, can thermostats last uh, longer than 100,000 miles? Um, it depends. If an engine overheats, chances are, regardless of whatever causes it, it usually damages the thermostat. So let's say you've had a coolant leak, coolant level got low, your engine got hot, overheated. Um, don't just fill it up and repair the leak. You should probably also replace the thermostat at that point. Okay. But, the, yeah, no, the, the thermostat itself, uh, unless there's, you know, it's defective or something, um, it, it should last indefinitely. All right. Every every spring, just about the time of uh, baseball season starts, uh, you can count on repair shops and ads uh, that, that are in the newspaper telling you it's time to recharge your air conditioning system. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you need to do this every year? Uh, if, if you're driving, you know, a 1970s vintage Cadillac and the thing's leaking like a sieve, that's probably <laughs> true. Um, about any air conditioning system since the mid-1990s, um, they use much better seals. They use what are called barrier-style hoses. They just don't leak like the old systems did. And those those things will go years and years and years uh, with the, the same original refrigerant in there. Um, if, if over time you've, you've had a car and say it's like 7, 8, 10 years old, and it's not cooling as well as it was, then, yeah, have it checked. And if your car needs refrigerant, they can add refrigerant to it. Or if it has a leak, they can repair it. I see a lot of uh, do-it-yourself uh, refrigerant kits that mm-hmm. where, where you add it. How do you know how much to put in? Well, the, the better kits have a little gauge with it. And they all, some, some of them are color-coded. Some of them, they give you a little chart, and they say, these are the pressures. You know, just, just fill it until you got this pressure in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to be careful, though, because when refrigerant comes out of a can, it can cause instant frostbite. And so if you're leaning over this hose and it sprays you in the face, um, oh it can my. be very serious. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> so wear gloves, wear eye protection. Make sure, you know, your connections are secure before you open that valve and start, you know, letting uh, refrigerant flow from the can into the system. Mm-hmm. And it's done with the engine running and idling. That's how they do it. And make sure also that you hook up to the correct side. There's a high-pressure side and a low-pressure side. The high-pressure side can be hundreds of pounds of uh, pressure in there. They have different size fittings to you know, help prevent mix-ups. But um, if somehow someone would try and circumvent that and hook it up to a can, a can could explode. You know, so I, think, I think I'll take mine to a shop. That, that's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, an air conditioning uh, system doesn't burn refrigerant, does it? I mean, no. It so, continually recycles the same stuff over and over again. Okay, so if you're low, then that means what? Uh, if it's low, it means you've got a leak somewhere. Uh, um, it could be a hose, it could be a seal, it could be a little pinhole in the condenser evaporator or something like that. Uh, one of the common leak points is the uh, the compressor, uh, AC compressor shaft seal. Um, that's probably the most common leak point of all. Hmm. Yeah. And there again, if, if you look at your AC compressor and you see what looks like little oily-looking streaks radiating out from there, and it's very greasy around there, chances are you've got a leak. I see. So so don't uh, every every year just automatically say, oh, yeah, and, and recharge my air conditioner. No, because what happens, too, is if you put too much refrigerant in the system, it will actually cool less efficiently. You need just the right amount in there for it to, to cool at peak efficiency. Okay. Uh, you know, the money you're saving me uh, will pay for something here, Larry. <laughs> I, <laughs> maybe dinner at least, and, uh, yeah. you know, nice dinner. Uh, engine air filters, it's one of those things that, just about everyone can change, but the um, the EPA says a dirty air filter 
probably will not affect your gas mileage. And and they say that it could reduce your acceleration, you know, 5 to 10%. Right. You agree with that? It depends on how dirty the filter is. I mean, if you'd been driving on, say, rural gravel roads for the last month, um, chances are that filter is clogged up really bad. It's going to create a, quite a restriction there. Um, the engine computer will compensate, you know, a certain point to keep your air-fuel mixture working fine and keep your emissions and fuel economy where it should be. But if you go out on the highway and step on it, because of that restriction, you're not going to get the power that you would normally. Um, so the, the computer can't compensate for that. So then the only the only fix for that is to replace that filter. Um, air, air filter intervals there again. Um, you'll see anything from 30,000 to 60,000. There's even a couple of cars out there that have so-called lifetime oil filters. There's a couple of Ford Focus models that have that. Um, these are 100,000-mile-plus filters, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there again, that the life of that filter depends on what kind of driving you're doing, and you know how much dirt and gunk is being sucked into there. Right. Uh, a surprise I had a while back was that on one of our cars, um, I decided to be you know proactive and change the engine air filter and the uh, cabin air filter. Mm-hmm. Well, I changed the cabin air filter first, and I pulled you know it's in the behind the glove box, and you right. slide this thing out. I mean, it was filthy. It was just yep. it was black. It had bugs and leaves and crud all over it. I went under the hood and changed the uh, engine air filter. I couldn't tell if it was dirty. Yeah, there was nothing. Well, and, one of the reasons, one of the things that helps keep the the engine air filters clean is there's a lot of baffles in the intake system, and the air goes around corners and up and down and around, and then there's a big box under, usually under the air filter itself. So a lot of the large chunks of debris and bugs and that kind of stuff, you know, settle out even before they hit that filter. Ah. Uh. And so the filter is sort of a, a last step to, to really catch the fine stuff to protect your engine. Um, now the cabin air filter, which a lot of people don't even realize they have one, uh, because it's buried out of sight. It's up in, you know, under behind the glove box, or in some cases it's at the base of the windshield, and you have to remove a panel or something inside the engine compartment to get to it. Um, that Basically, the air and stuff comes right in through the, the cowl area there at the grill and goes right into there. Um, so you, you see a lot more debris gets in there, leaves and bugs and seeds and all kinds of stuff. And as it plugs up, you know, mold and mildew can grow in there. You can get bad odors. It can restrict, you know, the airflow through your heater and air conditioner. So those, those need to be checked, you know, like every year or two and replaced. Um, some of them have a, a layer of activated um, charcoal in there or uh, uh, baking soda to help absorb odors. And the typical life on those is about a year. In fact, they're even making some now that are scented, so you turn it on, you get a nice, pleasant aroma that comes through your air conditioner. Well, how about that? Yep. Speak, speaking of air conditioning, uh, I had to have a repair, a rather expensive one recently, on replacing uh, an air conditioning evaporator uh-huh. that had apparently you know, corroded and, and started leaking. Yep. And the explanation was that crud can get in there. You know, leaves and stuff and, and uh, dirt and help um, cause the corrosion. Yeah, the, the evaporator looks like a little heater core or a little radiator, and it's, it's located up in under the dash inside of the uh, heating and air conditioning uh, system in there. Right. And that's where the cooling takes place is the, the air enters your engine compartment. Now, corrosion can attack it one of two ways. It can, t- can attack it from the outside, which would be, you know, like you said, dirt and bugs and leaves and mud and moisture and stuff getting in there. And because a lot of condensation forms on the surface of that thing as well. Every time the air conditioner is running, um, con- you know, condensation builds up in there and it drips and hopefully drains out through a little tube. 
The other thing that can cause failure is internally. Um, a lot of the Chrysler products have had severe problems with uh, evaporator failures because it was a manufacturing defect. Um, the, the metallurgy of the evaporators just wasn't right, and they would basically corrode and, and eat away from the inside out. Hmm. So that, that can vary there again on your make and model. Some cars have, you know, no problems at all. Others seem to have a, a high history of evaporator problems. Yeah, and the, the location, as you say, behind the uh, dashboard. Oh, very expensive to replace. Oh. It's like an 8- or 10-hour job to tear all that apart. And so, yeah, you're looking at a big repair bill. Yeah, I, you know, and still wonder if it's all back where it should be. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, we were going to take uh, one more break here, Larry. When we come back, I want to... See if we can officially put to rest the term tune-up. Okay. And move on to a few other maintenance items. All right. So please stay with us. We'll continue talking with Larry Carley of AA1Car.com about maintenance, facts, and fiction. This is Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Back to Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Larry Carley. Larry is a certified automotive technician and the author of numerous articles, books, and manuals on auto maintenance, diagnosis, and repair. Need help diagnosing a problem in your car? Visit Larry's website, aa1car.com you'll probably find the help you need. And if you have a question or comment for Larry, call us at 888-463-6748. Again, that is 888-463-6748. You know, the um, uh, tune-up used to be something you had to do probably twice a year on a car, and, and sometime in the 80s it started to fade away, but you still see it and hear it. Even when you walk into some car dealerships, the service departments, you see a sign on the wall for just $360, they'll give you <laughs> a complete tune-up, which seems like a bunch of fluid checks and other inspections. Such a deal, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there such a thing as a tune-up? Uh, no, that's ancient history. Um, if you go back to cars in, the say, like the 1950s, 60s, early 70s, the annual tune-up was something you had to do to basically keep your car running right. Um, in those days, we were running on leaded gasoline, and the, the lead in the gasoline would, you know, foul out the spark plugs typically after about a year or 12,000, 15,000 miles. Um, cars from that era also had distributors with mechanical contact points that would wear out over time. And they had carburetors, which you always had to fiddle with and readjust and that sort of thing to keep them running right. Um, in the starting around the mid-1970s, cars started to get electronic ignition systems. That did away with the points and the need for that adjustment, and we also changed to unleaded fuel, so now spark plugs were lasting three to four times as long as they used to. But, you know, you could still go in for a tune-up because cars still had carburetors. Then around, like, the mid-1980s, uh, fuel injection came in uh, with engine computer controls, and basically the computer took over all those functions they were uh, performally, you know, done by the carburetors and the ignition system. So on today's cars, uh, there, there's nothing really that a technician can adjust from an external standpoint. Um, the engine computer controls everything, controls, you know, spark timing, ignition advance, uh, the fuel mixture, all the emission functions, um, even, you know, how your battery charges and the transmission shifts and everything else. 
So, yeah, tune-up from that standpoint is obsolete. I, I would say a, a better term might be, you know, uh, just basically, you know, periodic uh, engine maintenance or something like that. Like that. But there again, um, with all these extended service intervals, the only other than oil changes, um, today's spark plugs typically last around 100,000 miles. They, so, they do. They're, uh, yeah. what, iridium tip? Yeah, the, the, some of them are platinum, some of them are iridium. These are both real high-temperature, expensive metals. But they do hold up well over a long period of time. So uh, there again, you know, and there's nothing to adjust. You basically take out the old plugs and install the new ones when it's time. It's it's amazing that they can uh, last that long, a uh, hundred thousand miles or more, and that the computers can just adjust the right. spark to match what's left on the spark plug, right? Yeah. In fact, you're seeing a lot of these cars even going 120, 150 thousand miles on the original plugs. And uh, by that time, though, they, they can be tricky to get out of an aluminum cylinder head. Um, over time, the, the steel shell on the spark plug can corrode, and when you try to take those plugs out, if you're not real, real careful, you can wind up damaging the uh, the threads in the cylinder head, and that, that's a repair you don't want to have to do. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I did notice that, that the uh, the 1.4-liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine that Chrysler sells, it's a Fiat engine, uh-huh. it calls for spark plugs every 30,000 miles. What's with these people? <laughs> well, in that case, uh, with some of the turbo engines and supercharged engines, um, you've got a lot more going on inside the combustion chamber. Uh, and so you got more erosion with the spark plugs, so they may call for more frequent uh, change intervals you know, on the plugs. Okay. Uh, what, what would you expect to gain by putting in uh, fresh spark plugs? What would you see or feel? Well, if, if the spark plugs are, if the gap is getting worn on there, or if you've got uh, uh, deposits build up on the electrode and it's shorting out the plug, it'll cause engine misfire. Um, you'll step on it, you'll maybe feel you know, some hesitation, maybe some, some bucking. You know, it just doesn't seem to be as powerful as it was. And if you've got a 1996 or newer car, you're going to get a check engine light if you're getting misfires. And the, basically the computer has a way of detecting that, and it will turn on the check engine light and set a code that corresponds to uh, you know, what's happening. In some cases, it'll tell you this, you know, this is a specific cylinder that's misfiring, and that would tell you to take a look at that spark plug, mm-hmm. or you may have what's called a random misfire where you have more than one cylinder, and that could be caused by a variety of things. So it should be apparent to the driver that yes. something's wrong. Yep, especially, there again, a four-cylinder engine, if you've got one cylinder misfiring, you're really going to notice it. <laughs> if you've got a big V8 and just one cylinder is slightly misfiring, you know, um, you might not even feel it. I think I, uh, I once had a uh, V8-powered car. <laughs> That had six of the eight cylinders running. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a while back. Yep. Here's uh, an incredible offer I got in the mail recently from a Honda dealer. Uh, among they have a bunch of you know service specials. This they don't say quite what it is. They they call it fuel injection service, mm-hmm. and they say it reduces exhaust emissions, improves gas mileage, improves starting, and smooths idle by improving fuel flow through the injectors. And it's on sale. Regular price two hundred dollars. Now this month only one hundred and sixty. Okay. I, I assume this is cleaning fuel injectors. Yeah, uh, basically o- over time, um, the fuel injectors can build up varnish deposits on the little nozzles where the, the fuel actually sprays into the engine. Mm-hmm. And how quickly that occurs depends on a couple of things. Obviously, the more miles you've got, the more deposit buildup you're going to have. Uh, short trip driving where the engine never gets really hot and where you're frequently turning an engine on and off. Um, You'll get the, the vapor deposits lay on the, the injectors, and that helps build up deposits. Uh, the quality of the gasoline. Um, some of the, you know, the, the, 
the really cheaply priced stuff may not have enough uh, uh, detergent in it to really help keep those injectors clean. So any combination of those factors can, can dirty up the injectors over time. Um, as with other engine problems, the, the computer can compensate for that up to a point, uh, but eventually you get to the point where, you know, the injector might not be spraying at all. It may be spraying erratically. Um, it's not getting a good uh, fuel distribution in there, so you're going to feel a, a loss in power and an increase in emissions and fuel consumption. So at that point, uh, yeah, you definitely need to uh, to have the injectors clean. You should then, you should notice this though. Yeah, you. I would think you would feel it. Um, I mean, you can all they, they try and sell it as a preventative maintenance thing, but as long as you're not experiencing any problems with it, I would say it's unnecessary. Now, are there gasoline additives, or 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 uh, you can buy, or are they already in the gasoline at the uh, well, pumps? Some of the, the gasoline companies have formed a, a group they call Top Tier uh, Gasolines. These mm-hmm. are like uh, uh, BP, uh, Mobil, uh, Shell, some of these others, and they have basically pledged to put more additives in there than what the, the government actually requires. And they're again on the theory that you know if we have the a good, really strong concentration of detergent in there, we're going to keep your injectors clean. You're not going to have problems. Um, the, some of the aftermarket additives, some of them are quite good. Tecron is probably the best of the bunch. Who is that? Tecron, T-E-C-H-R-O-N. It comes in a black bottle. It's about it's expensive stuff. It's about six or seven dollars a bottle, but it, it works very, very well. Some of the less expensive ones, some of the other brand names. Um, that sell for one, two, three, four bucks a bottle. Um, it's basically alcohol. It doesn't do much. Yeah. <laughs> alcohol, the old, uh, that's, that was the, um, help you start, uh, yeah. during the winter, too. Well, right? you figure all, probably most of the gasoline today has up to 10% ethanol in it anyway, so. True. Yep. All right. Going out from under the hood, um, and, and down into the, uh, chassis, uh, there has been for years, there there have been dire warnings that you should change your shock absorbers every 50,000 miles. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that was started by a shock absorber manufacturer. Yeah, I'm not Monroe sure. is the, the company is that it? did that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they obviously want to sell shock absorbers and struts. Um, the thing with shocks and struts is that they will gradually deteriorate over time. And if you take a car that's brand new and you drive that and you drive you know, a similar car that's got 50, 60, 70, 80,000 miles on it, you'll notice that the ride's a little softer, a little bouncier on the, the one with the, you know, the higher mileage shocks and, and struts on there. Um, if they get really, really bad, um, you're going to have problems with tire wear. Um, if you're trying to brake hard on a, on a rough road, um, it can actually increase the stopping distance to some extent. It may, you know, actually even, even trigger the anti-lock brake system because of all the, you know, the bouncing that's going on there. Mm. Um, it's not going to threaten your life. Your wheels aren't going to fall off your car or anything like that. So it's it's a tough sell as far as convincing you know the consumer. Yeah, you really need to replace these. Um, if if they're leaking, um, if they're totally shot, if they're damaged, you know, really really badly corroded, then yeah, it makes sense to replace them. But a worn shock absorber should allow more bouncing. Yes, they're actually misnamed, right? They're, they're they yeah. don't. It's the springs that absorb the shock. Well, yeah, the spring allows the suspension to move up and down, and the only thing the shock does is really dampen the oscillations of the suspension. Okay. If you take the shock completely off off the car, off of a car and you hit a bump, that thing's going to keep bouncing like a pogo stick <laughs> as you go down the road. I see. You see that every now and then. Yeah, you see a lot of cabs in Chicago that are like that. So. <laughs> All right. And um, uh, you mentioned early on and, and a couple times since that uh, you should follow the manufacturer's recommendations which to me is a uh, uh advice to 
actually look at your owner's manual. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> actually opening the owner's manual and reading it. When everything else fails, you should check your owner's manual, right? Yeah, I think when most cars are, are turned in, either the owner manual is missing or it's still wrapped in the original plastic. <laughs> <laughs> but this, uh, uh, I mean, they do all have a maintenance schedule. Occasionally yeah. it's a separate booklet, but this right. should be spelled out in there what uh, what you need and right. what you don't to some extent. Yep, and there again, voters need to pay attention to, everybody thinks they're normal drivers. But and, you know, a lot of people are actually severe service drivers because they're doing a lot of this real short trip driving stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the engines are not getting warm, things like that. So if if they've got a, uh, you know, their schedule spells out a, a more frequent service for severe service, I would recommend following that. Okay, uh, and 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 uh, driving in the Chicago area, unless uh, you just you know completely miss the uh, uh, rush hour traffic. You are in stop-and-go traffic oh, yeah. one way or another. Yeah, a lot of idle time. <laughs> yeah, okay. Larry, thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge and expertise on this. I think you really have uh, been uh, provide a lot of help for a lot of people. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. All right. Thanks again to Larry Carley, who is the proprietor of AA1Car.com. And that is about all the time we have for this week's episode of Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. Join us next week when we'll get down to where the rubber meets the road and talk about tireology. My guests will be John Rastetter and Woody Rogers of the Tire Rack, the online tire superstore. John and Woody are tire experts who will explain what you need to know about different sizes and types of tires, the pluses and minuses of those different types, and which tires might be best for you and your vehicle. That's next week when we explore the gripping subject of tireology. Until then, please visit my website, carstrucksandbucks.com, for more information about next week's show, news updates, and vehicle reviews. Thanks again to today's guest, Larry Carley of AA1Car.com, and thanks to you for listening.